0: Well, today I want to share on letting go of selfishness. Actually, when I was studying my notes, I went letting go of shellfishness. And I went, shellfish? I'm not teaching on crustaceans of prawns or something. You know, so I had to sort of like, you know, refine my mouth there. But first, let's define what selfishness is. And selfishness also has consequences to it, just to add that. Uh, The definition of selfishness is being concerned excessively or exclusively with oneself, seeking or concentrating on one's own advantage, pleasure or well-being without the regards of others. I mean, in today's world, we see endless examples of selfishness and it's important to note consequences follow. On the news, we see politicians making decisions over countries and their decisions uh, affect the people. Like you can see Sri Lanka, for example, what's happening there. We see in the corporate world marred with greed and we despise it. We see wars and we protest that. Selfishness has resulted with people being driven to poverty and hunger in the world. I mean, I've stated the obvious to you. You know, you would agree with, with me. We are living in some terrible times. But rarely do we turn our attention to our discerning eye and critical judgment towards ourselves. You know, that's something we don't really look at ourselves. Sometimes selfishness goes under the, the, the you know, the radar. Are we selfish? In 2 Timothy Chapter 3, 1 to 5, from the NIV reading. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of God, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. You know, wow, there's a lot there. But after reading this scripture, the first part of it is lovers of themselves. People will be lovers of themselves. And it's funny because the rest seems to follow that. You know, the plague of selfishness continues through things like you know, being puffed up, losing self-control, lovers of pleasure, forgetting God. You know, when you're selfish, it's like everything orbits around you. You are the centre of your your own universe. Oh, look, look, that's my work colleagues going past. Oh, that's my family, my husband, my wife. Oh, well, that's Jesus even going past. It's got to revolve around you. And this is something selfishness does. You lose sight of God. You lose sight of your fellow man and you you, you turn inwardly. Later on in life, it actually grows to be called loneliness. Our mission statement of this church is to love God and to love people. Philippians, Paul states in chapter 2, 3 to 4, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. In loneliness of mind... Lowliness of mind in the Amplified means neither arrogant nor self-righteous. Let each esteem others better than himself. Verse 4, let each of you look out not only for your own interests but also for the interests of others. I mean, it's okay, that the Scripture is saying, it's okay to look after your own interests. No one's saying to go live a reckless and destitute life without no responsibility. But it's also... Asking you to consider the person in your in your world, your neighbor. You know, a few weeks ago, even was saying how he, he saw a, a beggar on the side of the road and he sort of like avoided him at first, but then God spoke to him and he went back and he and he met the guy's need. You know, the Bible tells us us Christians are uh, the light, the fragrance of God. You know, praise God, he's called us to be ambassadors of Jesus called us to pro- proclaim the good news to everyone um, and in in Mark chapter 6 it tells us to go make disciples of others Pe- people people will see our actions they'll observe us you'll see it in the workplace you claim you're a Christian but they're the first ones to see what you're doing and oh you shouldn't be doing that you're a Christian you know they they see be do, in James Raquel was sharing be doers of the word not just hearers only. The reality is for so many people that we live our lives with, we're the closest thing to Jesus they're going to see. So it's important to consider the way we we do life. I mean, is there a sale on at the shops? I mean, the the, 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 the toilet toilet um paper thing comes to mind. That is it the last batch of toilet paper and we've got to wrestle the guy for it or are we pushing in line to be the first one at the counter or can we take a step back and say look you go before me I mean if it's the last mobile phone on the rack do we have to wrestle someone to get it and then when we come home our family members we unplug all their mobile phones and put our charger in because I'm first It's me you know bless you so are we thinking of people in our, you know, day-to-day life? Is your light shining? You know, praise God, Jesus taught us in the Gospels on how we ought to live a life through love. In, in John 15:13, Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Now, he's not expecting us to go and, you know, put ourselves on the first telegraph pole and pin us to the... To the wood or anything like that i mean jesus done that he paid the price you there's nothing that you can do to get that love he he's he's pays he's a king of kings the lord of lords he knew no sin he did not consider himself he didn't come with the title look i'm the lord of lords i'm the king he was actually telling people Shh, you don't tell anybody he considered not himself but when he went to the cross he considered us when you look at that cross, I know Jesus at the right hand of the Father. But when you look at that cross, that cross should say, I love you. Jesus loves you. Praise the Lord. So we ought to walk in love too. In 1 Corinthians 13, the whole passage, I know you're saying this guy just keeps on giving scriptures because you need to know the word of God. That's the most important thing. Me rattling off a few stories and, uh, you know, speaking eloquently is not going to bring salvation and and hope into your life and a change. It will sound good, but um, 1 Corinthians 13, the whole passage there talks about the importance of love, that if you don't know love, if you don't have love, you're nothing. Well, that's powerful to say that. The Apostle Paul was writing, selfish people are unable to love others. Though no, they just think just think of that for a moment. Okay, moments up. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 13, New King James Version from verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have the faith to to remove mountains, but not love, I am nothing. In verse 4, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, and does not behave rudely, does not seek its own. Galatians 6.3, if anyone thinks that they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves, they're nothing. It's amazing how the scriptures sort of intertwine with one another. This scripture I read to you in 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the most popular scriptures read out at um, a Christian wedding. Um, 99% of the weddings I've gone that have been Christian, they've read out 1 Corinthians 13. Actually, it was actually at my wedding too. Um, and, I, you know, it's, uh, I think it's scripture that we should be reading more often to know about more about love. See, in the world, most of the marriages, and at times Christian marriages too, have failed as a result of self-centeredness. In today's world, we think when we get married, it's what we can get out of the relationship. And that's the biggest deception. It's not what you can get out of it. That's the world's way. It's what you can put into it. That's what marriage is. It's dying to yourself and dying to herself and being one in Christ. And then what comes along is children. And then both of you got to die again and and nurture the the, the, children. Children. So um, that's a characteristic of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he died for us. Maybe we should die to ourselves. I want to share a scripture in the New Testament of a selfish person who did not look to the interest of his fellow man and where that led him as a consequence. I mean, it's funny. Some of you guys must have read this scripture a hundred times. Let's read it. It's nine verses. It's Luke chapter 16, 19 to 28. The rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Well, that's a good sight. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor anyone cross from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. I mean, Jesus there in that parable shows a contrast of two people here. You know, the rich man dressed in purple. In those days when you were exceedingly wealthy, you could afford that purple garment, that attire. And so he lived in luxury every day. And imagine, he sees Lazarus at at, at his feet, at his table, crawling around for crumbs and sees the dogs licking his sores. Well, what kind of a hard-hearted person would you be? He had the means to look after his neighbour, a person in need. I mean, it wasn't degrading enough that the dogs were licking his sores. He couldn't meet this guy's need in any way. Was he that cold-hearted that he was blinded? I guess he was. He couldn't even give him a slice of bread. Anyway, they both die. The roles have now reversed. Lazarus is in paradise. The rich man is, hell, uh, is in hell. And it's funny that Jesus doesn't give the rich man a name, like the scriptures I read. For anyone that thinks that he is something, he's actually nothing. So Jesus didn't even give this rich man a name. But Lazarus, the poor guy, did have a name and an identity. You know, we, you know, In verse 24, the rich man cries out for mercy. You know, at this stage, when you read the scripture, you might feel sorry for the rich man. You know, you think that he's repenting, but he's not. His selfishness continues. While he's in hell, he's still thinking about himself and his comfort. And he's asking, um, get Lazarus to dip his finger in some water to come and put this torment out. He's asking Lazarus, the guy that he couldn't even give a a slice of bread to, now he wants this fellow to come down and, and, and meet his need? It's funny, he wanted the cooling finger of Lazarus, but he couldn't reach out his hand when he could, the rich man, to help Lazarus. Maybe Lazarus should have sent his dog down there to maybe lick him up. But then again, why should we do that to the dog? Poor dog, he's got... You know, why send him to hell? You know? But Jesus in this parable teaches us the consequences of our actions towards others. You know, often we don't consider our fellow man because the way we live life, it's, you know, it's so fast. Time's going so quick. I mean, Jesus didn't send the rich man to hell. He chose to go. And then even in the conversation with Abraham, he'd made no repentance. And on top of that, he, he wanted Lazarus, not one favor to, to cool him off. He wanted Lazarus to go and um, see his brothers, to, to tell them not, you know, to, to change their ways. I mean, if it's a family trait, I don't think the brothers would have fed Lazarus either, you know. Well, selfishness and pride the word pride, P-R-I-D-E, I can spell. The middle letter is I, I. It's all about I, me. And when that pride starts, and you know, pride comes before a fall, that door opens to the devil. Now, I'm not going to read a whole lot of scripture, but I'm going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to show you an extreme case of selfishness and what the consequences was there how the devil comes in Um, 2nd Samuel chapter 11 I urge you guys to read it during the week it's a story of King David Bathsheba and Uriah Uriah was Bathsheba's husband and Uriah was the general the most faithful general in King David's army now we're talking about the same King David that wrote 73 psalms out of the 150 psalms that you see you know, in, the, in his teenage life, he had victory over Goliath. He was a man of integrity. King Saul was after his life all the time, but he, he still walked in, you know, in humbleness and, and integrity. He, he, he followed God, and, and God anointed him as king, and, and now he, he's uh, many victories. He won many victories, and the favor of God was upon him. He's king now. He's got eight wives. He's got everything. One particular evening, he wakes up while his men are at war, King David's at home. So he goes for a stroll in the evening up on his rooftop. As he's looking out of his rooftop, he peers down and he sees a beautiful woman having a bath. He, re- he inquires with one of his men, who is this woman, you know, this beautiful woman? And, and his servant says, is this not the daughter of Eliam? The wife of Uriah, the Hittite, your general. So the servant was saying, "She belongs to somebody, you know." In in a nutshell, he said, "You can't have her." But in those days, what the king wants, the king gets. So he sends another servant over, and sure enough, he sleeps with her, and you know it's not rocket science, but she falls pregnant. So now he's got a a bit of a dilemma. the the, the husband of this wife is there fighting battles for him while he's strolling around perving on people. You know, I mean, I know it sounds a bit crude, but so now what am I going to do? So he gets Uriah from the war and he comes over, he says, I command you to go spend some time with your your wife, thinking if he goes and spends time and get intimate with his wife, we can cover this one up. So then the next day, the servant, of King David says, uh, the general that you sent to go and spend time with his wife is actually sleeping at the front door of the place, of his place. He hasn't entered. So King David calls him over again and he says, didn't I command you to go and spend time with your wife? And listen to what he says. This is the thing about faithfulness. He turns around and he says, how can I go and spend time with my wife when my men are in battle? He was considering his men. So he slept outside the front door of his place saying, I cannot go have that pleasure while my men are in battle. So King David has another idea. I'll put this general of mine, this most faithful man that the Bible in the Old Testament that you come across, I'll put him at the front line. And sure enough, he gets killed. Now, where am I going with this? The prophet Nathan later comes in and rebukes him. And you know, King David repents but what happens, he opens a door to the devil. And it wasn't enough that one of his wife, Abigail, was like a supermodel. He had to have more. And he's opened the door to the devil. And this is what happens in his household. One of his sons, Amon, to start, um, rapes his uh, Absalom's sister. So there's a family affair going here. Absalom, his sister, Absalom's so upset with this story, with what's happening, he wants justice, but he doesn't find it in King David. So now his own son is after King David. His own sons drive him out of the the, 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 um, kingdom. What I'm trying to say is that when you open the door to the devil, and selfishness is a big key of that, So you can see, again, I urge you to read that. I won't go in, you know, in in big detail there. I hope I haven't put you to sleep or anything, because slowly I'm going to come to a story which actually might. No, it won't. I know at times our lives, there's trials and tribulations. We go through them. There's challenges we face in life. There are times when we are faced with offence and unforgiveness. We harbour it in our hearts. We start to build walls. We don't let God in and we don't let people. We develop a me attitude and it ends up to be self pity. Our childlike faith in God gets compromised. As we get older, our hearts grow colder to the things of God instead of bolder for the things of God. We wonder why we are not bearing good fruit and our fragrance in Christ diminishes. And we seem to blend in with the rest of the world. We are so me and I attitude that we lose the humbleness in our life and we begin to pick up the grumble. Slowly bitterness and grief become our friends. What will it take for your heart to melt towards Jesus? Sometimes when I get in this thing, I know it's the Holy Spirit on me, You've got to understand that Jesus has done so much for us in our life. And I'm so appreciative of that. Now, I'm going to share um, a children's story, believe it or not. What is he going to do now? A children's story is called The Selfish Giant. Um, I think children would not understand this story, but I think it appeals to the adult heart. So I've just got another 11 minutes or so. Okay, let's start. The Selfish Giant. Every afternoon, and I'll try to do a few voice characterizations. Every afternoon as they were coming from school, the children used to go and play in the giant's garden. It was a large, lovely garden with soft green grass. Here and there over the grass stood beautiful flowers like stars. There were 12 peach trees in the springtime broke out into a delicate blossom of pink and pearl and in the autumn bore rich fruit. The birds sat on the trees and sang so sweetly. The children used to stop their games in order to listen to them. How happy we are, they cried to each other. One day the giant came back. He had, he had been to visit his friend, the Cornish ogre, and had stayed there for seven years. But after seven years, after seven years were over, he said all he had to say for his conversation was limited and he determined to return back to his castle. When he arrived, he saw the children playing in the garden. What are you doing here? He cried in a very gruff voice and the children ran away. My own garden is my own garden, said the giant. Anyone can understand that and I will not allow anybody to play in it but myself. So he built a high wall around it and put up a notice board. Trespassers will be prosecuted. The poor children had nowhere to play. They tried to play on the road, but the road was very dusty and full of hard stones, and they did not like it. They used to wander around the high wall when their lessons were over and talk about the beautiful garden. How happy we were there, they said to each other. Then the spring came and all the country, there were little blossoms and little birds. Only in the garden of the selfish giant, it was still winter. The birds did not care to sing in it as there was no children and the trees forgot to blossom. Once a beautiful flower put its head out from the grass, but when it saw the notice board, It was so sorry for the children that it slipped back into the ground again and went off to sleep. The only people who were pleased were the snow and the frost. Spring has forgotten this garden, they cried, so we will live here all year round. The snow covered up the grass with her great white cloak and the frost painted the trees silver. They invited the north wind to come with them and he came, he wrapped in furs and he, he roared around all day about the garden and blew chimney pots down. This is a delightful spot, he said. We must ask the hail on a visit. So the hail came. Every day for three hours he rattled on the roof of the castle till he broke most of the slates. And then he ran around and round the garden as fast as he could. He was dressed in grey and his breath was like ice. I cannot understand why the spring is so late in coming, said the selfish giant, as he sat in the window and looked out of his cold white garden. I hope there will be a change in the weather. But the spring never came, nor the summer. The autumn gave golden fruit to every garden, but the giant's garden, she gave none. He is too selfish, she said. So it was always winter there and the north wind and the hail and the frost and the snow dance about through the trees. One morning the giant was lying awake in bed when he he heard some lovely music. It sounded so sweet to his ears that he thought it must be a king's musicians passing by. It was only a little linnet singing out of his window, but it was so long since he had heard a bird sing in his garden that it seemed to be the most beautiful music in the world. Then the hail stopped dancing over his head and the north wind ceased roaring and a delicious perfume came through the open casement. I believe the spring has come at last, said the giant. And he jumped out of the bed and looked out. What did he see? He saw a most wonderful sight. Through a little hole in the wall, the children had crept in and were sitting in the branches of the trees. Every tree that could see There was a little child, and the trees were so glad to have the children back again that they covered themselves with blossoms and waving their arms gently above the children's heads. The birds were flying about and twittering with delight, and flowers were looking up through the green grass laughing. It was a lovely scene. Only in the corner, it was still winter. It was the farthest corner of the garden, and in it was standing a little boy. He was so small he could not reach the branches of the tree and he was wandering all around it, crying bitterly. The poor tree was still quite covered with frost and snow and the north wind was blowing and roaring around it. Climb up, little boy, said the tree. And he it bent its branches down as low as he could, but the boy was too tiny and the giant's heart melted as he looked out. How selfish I have been, he said. Now I know why spring would not come here. I will put that poor little boy on top of the tree, and then I will knock down the wall, and my garden shall be the children's playground forever and ever. He was very, really very sorry for what he had done. So he crept downstairs and opened the front door quite softly and went out into the garden. But when the, when, he, when the children saw him, they were so frightened that they all ran away. And the garden became winter again. Only the little boy did not run, for his eyes were so full of tears that he did not see the giant coming. And the giant stole up behind him, took him gently in his hand and put him in the tree. And the tree broke out at once into blossoms. And the birds came and sang on it. And the little boy stretched out his two arms and flung them around the giant's neck and kissed him. And the other children, when they saw the giant was not wicked any longer, they came running back and came the spring with them. It is your garden now, little children, said the giant. And he took a great axe and knocked down the wall. And when the people were going to the marketplace at 12 o'clock, They found the giant playing with the children in the most beautiful garden they had ever seen. All day long they played, and in the evening came to the giant. They bid him goodbye. But where is your little companion? He said, the boy I put in the tree. The giant loved him best because he had kissed him. We don't know, answered the children. He has gone away. Bear with me. still just a little bit to go. You must tell him to be sure and come here tomorrow, said the giant. But the children said they did not know where he lived and never seen him before, and the giant felt very sad. Every afternoon when the school was over, the children came and played with the giant, but the little boy who the giant loved was never was never seen again. The giant was very kind to the children, yet he longed for his first little friend and often spoke of him. How oh, I would like to see him he used to say. Years went over and the giant grew very old and feeble. He could not play anymore, so he sat in his huge armchair and watched the children in their games and admired his garden. I have many beautiful flowers, he said, but the children are the most beautiful flowers of all. One winter morning, he looked out of his window as he was dressing. He did not hate winter now, For he knew that it was merely spring asleep and that flowers were resting. Suddenly he rubbed his eyes in wonder and looked and looked. It was certainly a marvellous sight. In the farthest corner of the garden was a tree quite covered with lovely white blossoms. Its branches were golden and its silver fruit hung down from them. Underneath it stood that little boy he loved. Downstairs ran the giant in great joy and ran to the garden he hastened across the, the quite close, his face, as he went close to the, to the boy, his face was filled with anger. And he said, Who hath dared wound thee? For on the palm of the child's hands were prints of two nails, and on his feet were prints of two nails. Who hath dared wound thee? cried the giant. Tell me that I may go take my sword and slay him. Nay, answered the child, these are wounds of love. Who art thou? said the giant. And a strange awe fell on him, and he knelt before the child. And the child smiled on the giant and said, you let me play in your garden. Today you will come to my garden, which is paradise. And when the children ran in that afternoon, they found the giant lying dead under the tree, all covered with white blossoms. That's that story. I hope you understood the the gist of that story. Um, Band, if I can have you come up. Thank you. See, that's the thing we do in life. We build up the walls. And then we wonder why I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for 20, 30, 40 years, and I haven't bore fruit, you know. Um, Because you've built up walls. You haven't let God in. You haven't let the light of God shine you haven't got the love of Christ. That's what we're, you know, we gave up our, when we decided to make Jesus the Lord of your life, you said, I'll live for you. You've died in Christ and you are alive in him. In Mark eight thirty four, Jesus said, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I'm asking you today, are you going to consider Jesus? He has given us everything. Today I want to invite you to return back to your first love. Take that axe and start breaking down those walls. Forgive. Don't get offended. Because forgiveness and love are hand in hand. If you have unforgiveness, you cannot love. Today I want to invite you to return back to Jesus. And if you don't know Him, here is an opportunity for a new day. You know, one thing about Jesus is, you know, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, He says, you know, when you receive Christ, you're a new creation in Him. God doesn't say, oh, you've done this wrong, you've done that wrong. It's a new slate every day. You know, the Bible says, God's mercy endures forever. While the band play, I just want to pray this prayer and if you want to pray with me Jesus I want to make you the Lord my Lord and Savior come into my life forgive me of my sins thank you thank you for giving your life for me thank you for giving me your Holy Spirit I receive your Holy Spirit now Just for a second, while the while music's playing, just reflect on Him. Open your heart. Ask Him to come. If the, if you need prayer after the service or while they're while the band's praying, I'll stand out the front. And Pastor Nuno's here. It's not about who's next to you. It's about you and Jesus. Are you going to l- change the way you live? Because ultimately, it affects your own life. This message is for you to let go of selfishness so that you can grow in the things that God has for you. Come to him daily. Seek, he's the bread of life. Seek him daily.